0: Just possible that we are such a young species still that we have misunderstood the nature of ultimate reality and the nature of that higher power that some of us call God or Allah or Brahman Yahweh Jehovah whatever name you want to use to refer to that ineffable essence that we call the divine what if we are simply misunderstanding what it is and what it wants and what it requires and how to use it. And so the book proposes the question, if we don't know how to use this higher power in which 80% of us agree that there must be something larger than us going on, but if we don't know how to use that higher power, then we are like children playing with matches in the dynamite room. (laughs) And that's exactly what's going on. So that's my four and a half minute answer to your 30 second question.
1: Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same, like right now. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Just want to say a token of gratitude, a token of appreciation in this ever-saturated, market of stuff that gets flung into your ears, that gets driven deep into your eyeballs. I am really grateful that you are taking the time to listen to me and my wonderful guests. Um, and I also honor you for doing that because obviously you're doing it because you you want to expand your wisdom and your knowledge and your understanding of addiction, of relationships, you want to grow and uh, kudos to you. Kudos to you. So, thank you for being here. Really appreciate you. Um, I'm really excited about today's guest. His name is Neil Donald Walsh. I read his book "Conversations with God," and I want to say at the outset that I am not somebody who believes in God in a scriptural, uh, biblical sense. You know, the uh, the God that we are taught about in our churches and taught about in school. Um, that's not for me. Uh, hasn't been for me. Uh, since um, my mother told me that she lost her daughter and had to give birth to a stillborn when I was around eight, nine. At that time, I was like, okay, I'm done with God. Why would a God let that happen? So I I don't believe in in God. However, uh, I do believe that there's something going on that I don't understand. And I I try to tap into that energy. And uh, that belief in something bigger than me uh, has really helped me and has really helped me progress. And his book, Conversations with God, is one of the best books I've read. It's really, really is fantastic. Really is fantastic. Um, I want to share one example out of that book that I got. So Neil was talking to God in the book, and um, I'm paraphrasing here, but Neil was uh, somewhere along the lines of, look, you know, why don't you just tell me what my meaning and purpose is? Why don't you just tell me what to do so I could just follow uh, a step-by-step process to be successful and, and, and to get what I need out of life? And God turned said to him, well, well, I do. I show you signs every day. Everybody has the signs they need. They, they just don't choose to follow them. And that was massive for me. Um, what did that mean for me? Intuition. Intuition, risk-taking, bravery. You know, when you know in your gut that this is the right thing to do, Uh, That uh, there's some synchronicity and serendipity in the air, uh, that you are the people that you need are coming into your space. The bravery and the courage is starting to simmer up, the opportunities are starting to present themselves. That, I believe, is God in whatever form or manifestation you wish to uh, perceive him or her. That is him or her providing you with a sign. The signs are always there. You've just got to find the courage to go follow them. That was massive for me. That made me grow um, in a business sense, as a leader, as a human being, as a father, as a husband, uh, exponentially, right? And then his second book that I'm reading called The God Solution is when he talks about pure love. If we can emanate, if we can all emanate from a place of pure love, what a very different world this will be. Um, And that is my new maxim. Whenever I'm talking to Liza and Zia, the two people I talk to the most in the world, Jude is there as well on the periphery of that because he's still in the UK. I'm always asking myself, mainly after I'm still not getting there before, did I enter that conversation from a place of pure love? And if I didn't, how can I go back and change that? Right? So pure love absolutely incredible for me can I always emanate from a place of pure love and that leads into something that's really important that I want to talk about before I introduce Neil is I've been working with people suffering from di- addictions in all different um, shapes and sizes for a decade now and I could tell you that the one kind of one of the primary factors that is in existence in everybody's struggle to overcome addiction, is an inability to effectively navigate relationships from a place of pure love. They find it really difficult to navigate conflict externally, and they find it very difficult to stop creating conflict internally. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are the Kung Fu masters of fighting with ourselves and putting ourselves down, and you know it, right? You know it. And because we cannot get these relationship stuff right, it leads us to turn to alcohol for the answer to our prayers, particularly when we get flooded, when we become emotionally unavailable to ourselves or another person in our relationship because we just can't handle the conflict anymore, okay? So to help you on that score, I put together a a fresh, brand new, free, guidebook. It's called Relationship Secret Bible, no pun intended, God, Uh, the essence of the top eight relationship books uh, that will really change your life. So I've taken the eight books that have really changed my life, and I'm sharing the main takeaways from those books with you in this incredible guidebook. Think of it as uh, Lee Davis' own personal Blinkist On relationships, right? So if you want a copy of that, then get over to uh, the website www.1000daysober.com and you'll see a little tag there called free stuff and sign up for that book, okay? And once you sign up for it, we will give you an opportunity to join our 12, yes, I don't have enough fingers on my hands, 12 days of training where I teach you in our own private Facebook area, I teach you five critical critical notions that you need to understand when it comes to embodying uh, conscious conflict with yourself and other people. Okay. So that private Facebook group, 12 days of wonderful training around relationships centered on five really amazing coaching training videos. We are going to be bringing them to you. And if you don't like Facebook, Don't worry about it. Email me at at one gmail.com and I'll make sure that we provide you with all the content that we're giving away for free. I'll provide it to you in a different platform, okay? So if you sign up, get the guide, then you'll get access into that private Facebook group. That is all beginning Friday the 12th of March. So get your skates on and get in there as soon as possible. The more, the merrier, right? Because the more, the merrier, the better, and the more um, amazing uh, time that we'll have, right? on to our guest today. Throughout human history, religion has been weaponized with countless wars waged in God's name. We understand God to be punishing, condemning, and judgmental, but nothing could be farther from the truth. In this episode, I talked to Neil Donald Walsh, the best-selling author of the series Conversations with God, and more recently, The God Solution. In fact, Neil has written 29 books on humanity's constant search for spiritual meaning. He argues that something is fundamentally wrong with our definition of God. As his children, we model our behavior based on an inaccurate notion of a punishing deity instead of one who represents a higher expression of pure love. When we change our understanding of God, we can start acting from a place of kindness and humanity. Okay? It's a really beautiful conversation. This man is a really beautiful man. Okay? So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Neil Donald Walsh. I thank you. Neil, welcome. It's been a real pleasure. I found out about your work reading Conversation with God and um, found that extremely interested. And then I've been reading The God Solution, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. And for every solution, there is a problem. So for the people listening, what is the problem that you're trying to address in the book, Neil? The world.
0: Everywhere you look. I mean, nothing is working. I mean, Lee, nothing is working. Hmm. Are uh, To give you a rundown, our political systems, which were designed to create a way for us to interact with those who govern us and to do so legitimately and, and uh, in a coherent way, are not, simply not working. And, and, and they were also created, our political systems were created to allow nations to get along with nations, countries to deal with countries. Those systems, not only are they not working, they're actually uh, doing worse it's worse than that they're actually creating challenges and difficulties they're they're creating problems more problems than they're solving mm. our economic systems which were designed ostensibly to um, produce at least the opportunity for equality if not actual equality at least at least the opportunity for equality between people and nations are not working in fact they're producing exactly the opposite Mm -hmm. Our educational systems, which are designed to provide people with the information they need to have to live better lives, are not doing that in too many countries of the world. In fact, they're producing exactly the opposite result. Our social systems, Lee, which were put together uh, in order for people in different uh, classes within our societies, different financial groups, racial groups, spiritual groups, sexual orientations and so forth. They were designed those social, um, uh, our society's social systems were designed to help us get along better with each other. In fact, they're not doing that. They're doing exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. And our spiritual, the saddest of all, our spiritual systems, which were designed to bring us closer to God, and hopefully as a result, closer to each other, are doing exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. More wars and conflicts have been started on this planet in the name of God than for any other reason. So when you say, what's the problem? Hello, excuse me. (laughs) Everywhere you look. There's a problem. But today, the biggest problem, the largest problem in the world today can be summarized in one word, alienation. We are seeing ourselves as a civilization alienating from each other. Alienation based on our political differences, our social differences, our sexual orientation, our race, our color, our religion, our political understandings. We we're just alienating from each other. And and I've I've never seen this level. Of alienation uh, before in my lifetime. Yeah, we've 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 had differences of opinion, fair enough. But I've never seen human society so split asunder the way I'm seeing it now in so many of the nations of the world, not just in the country in which I live, but all across the globe. Mm-hmm. People haven't can't figure out a way to get along. So this the problem is we're simply dysfunctional, utterly and completely dysfunctional as a society, as a civilization. We call ourselves an advanced civilization, but in this advanced civilization, we have chiefs of state calling each other names like bullies on a playground. On Twitter. <laughs> calling each <laughs> other names. You know, my missiles are bigger than your missiles. Mm. I mean, it's, it's like acting like three-year-olds. So that's the problem. And we understand that the solution is really quite simple. We're using the wrong model for our behaviors. We are modeling our behaviors on a deity, on a God, if you will, that is, according to our largest understanding, punishing, condemning, and judgmental and Now, you might say, well, you know, maybe religionists have those ideas, but people don't. But, of course, people do because we are modeling our behaviors on what we understand the behaviors of God to be. And others might say, well, you're exaggerating, Neil, because not that many people believe in God, but in fact... Recent studies have shown surveys of every culture on the planet, not just a a particular culture, but surveys on all the cultures of the planet have shown that eight out of 10 human beings believe in a higher power of some sort. Hmm. They may not have the same name for it. They may not all refer to it in the same way, but eight out of 10 people, that's 80% of the human race, believes there's some kind of a higher power, something larger than us. That's governing things or that has an impact on how life is experienced on the planet. So now if eight out of 10 people hold an idea that this higher power is judgmental, condemning and punishing, then we're going to be judgmental, condemning and punishing. Because, hey, you know what? What's good enough for God? Good enough for me. And so we're basing our behaviors like a child who has been raised badly by his parents, you know. When when young people act out and behave badly, we say, you know, often we look at their household. What, what was their household like? What was their upbringing like? What are their parents like? How have they been raised? Well, the human race are like children being raised by a God that we believe is judgmental, condemning, and punishing. So the God solution is to change our definition of God. To put it into one brief five-minute summary, the God solution is to say, what if, and I could be wrong, it's a what-if question, it's a hypothetical question, but for the purposes of just deep exploration, what if there's something we don't fully understand here about God and about life, the understanding of which would change everything? Is it possible, just possible? That we are such a young species still that we have misunderstood the nature of ultimate reality and the nature of that higher power that some of us call God or Allah or Brahman, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever name you want to use to refer to that ineffable essence that we call the divine. What if we are simply misunderstanding what it is and what it wants and what it requires and how to use it? And so the book proposes the question, if we don't know how to use this higher power in which 80% of us agree that there must be something larger than us going on. But if we don't know how to use that higher power, then we are like children playing with matches in the dynamite room. And that's exactly what's going on. So that's my four and a half minute answer to your 32nd question.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it goes a lot deeper than that. I mean, when I grew up, nearly in the UK, in the north of England, in Manchester, my mum and dad believed in God, you know, a biblical God, but it was never really anything that we talked about in the home. So I, I grew up, I, tell you, I had an event in my life where my mother had to carry and deliver a stillborn child. I think I'm, I might've been eight or nine. And I made that decision at that time that I wasn't going to believe in God, right? As a, as a young child. And that That stuck with me until now, today at forty six years of age. So I became because what what kind
0: of because our a nine year old child would ask what kind of a God would allow that to happen?
1: Correct, and and I had nobody around me to even talk to me about it or to to answer my questions. I I think I was even scared to to ask them. So I became part of the twenty percent. Like I I I became like you know those two out of ten people who didn't believe. However, because the because eight out of ten were the societal institutions that I grew up in were heavily influenced by you know religion and, and God and and so even if I'm part of the I don't believe in God I'm still influenced by this belief or what I what I use the word scarcity that the whole world is operating from a place of scarcity so I think like you say like even if you don't believe in God you're still going to be touched by this what I perceive to be, Scarcity, which comes from disconnection, alienation, like the inability to even communicate with with anybody, and you know, you touch about relationships in the book. Um, I'd like to go there if possible, because when I think of the macro problem, you know, of kind of like spreading pure love around the world, I just, I just bring it straight back to I just spent time with my four year old daughter this morning, and how challenging it is for me to to come from a place of pure love. I find it difficult at that micro level, so then I say to myself how am I, how am I going to do this and be the standard bearer for neil's work Does or even the standard
0: or even the standard bearer for your own child? Yes, forget yeah. about being the standard bearer for my work. What can you do to be the primary example, the exemplar, the model that your your, your child will base her behavior on because I promise you. She's going to behave exactly the way you behave. Mm. Oh, yeah. And and so your behavior is not simply an occurrence. It's a teaching. Mm. Your behavior is not simply a behavior. It's a message. And your children will will receive that message and say, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like when you're an adult. Mm. And I have repeated my father's behaviors. You know, his good ones, the -hmm. things he taught me that were very powerful and very positive. And and honestly, the things he taught me that he showed me that maybe were not so positive. And so we then see why it has been written. Yea, the sins of the father shall be visited upon the sons, even unto the seventh generation. So it's not about becoming some kind of a messenger for these words that are in the the God solution. It's about becoming a messenger for your own children, which I might add, I have not been so good at with my own children. Thank goodness I've lived to be old enough to be able to take them all aside now that they're all adults Hmm. and and to at least acknowledge to them, hey, I need you guys to know. You don't want to behave. You don't want to behave the way I behave. You don't want to imitate me. Do not imitate me. I see that I made some huge mistakes. In showing you what it means to be a, a loving, compassionate, caring, forgiving, and accepting human being. And so, take everything you saw me doing in those areas and throw it out the window. Hmm. Discard the, me- the messages that I gave you. And I'm, I've been old enough to be able to at least sit down with my children, who are also now old enough to understand, to hmm. be able to hear me. I'm not talking to a seven-year-old child. I'm talking to a 27 or 37-year-old uh, son or daughter. And my children are now in their 50s, and in their, late, uh, in their late 30s and 40s. So I have nine children. So I've been able to sit down with every one of them and say, I'm only grateful to God that I lived long enough to at least go back over my shoulder and let you know that I am now clear that the messages I sent you on how to interact around the house. I don't mean on major issues, but I mean even just how to move around the house, how to play with each other joyfully. How to interact with each other as friends and as loved ones. How to talk with each other in a way that's civil and kind and gentle and caring. And that expresses pure love that wants and needs nothing in return. What I taught you about those things is not what I would teach you if I had to do over again today. You know, it's sad. There are certain cultures on the planet where elders raise the children. I don't think we should be raising our children. I think we should. I, I mean, when, else. When, yeah, when we're kids ourselves, mm-hmm. I was raising my kids when I was a kid myself, 21 years old, for heaven's sake. I didn't understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. But if, if I was raising my children today, from the time I turned even 60 or 65, would I have raised them differently than I did? Hello? Mm-hmm. I think so. So, wouldn't it be interesting if we gave birth to our children when we are young, but then gave them to our our own parents, to their grandparents and said, you know, okay, you got the first 10 years (laughs) or at least the first five or six, you know, and and so they can see, you know, what it's like to be kind and gentle and caring and understanding and compassionate and loving in a pure way Mm. because grandparents most cases. I realize I'm dealing in stereotypes here, but most grandparents don't need much in return. They, they, they don't have a lot on the line. They don't have a deep investment. They, they just want to give the child a hug and give them a squeeze and, you know, and and tell the child. And You know what's wonderful about grandparents? When uh, young children misbehave or create a problem in the house, knock over the milk or or whatever at the dinner table for being too gregarious or whatever and begin to cry because they see that they made a mess of dinner to destroy the entire dinner party. You know, a grandparent will not punish that child. Grandparent doesn't say, go to your room. You should have known better. Some parents might do that, but a grandparent would actually take that child into his arms and hug the child and love the child in the moment of its... Miss so-called misbehavior, mm. and say there, there it's okay, sweetheart. Grandpa loves you, and she, you know
1: I've got to believe that God is at least as nice as my grandpa. Is there something in that though? Like, are we? Let me just think about this a second. Formulate my my thoughts. So, I'm a byproduct of the way my my mom and dad parented me, and they parent and they were parenting me because they were really young. So I, when you said we need to give up, maybe we could consider giving our children to our grandparents. I became judgmental straight away. And I, in my head, I was like, I'm not, I wouldn't give my daughter to my parents because they raised me and I didn't like the way they raised me, but so but presu- they are, Presumably they're older and wiser now. Exactly. Yeah. And I never, I've never thought about that. My my attachment to the story is this is how they raised me. This is how they will raise my child. However, I'm living in a house right now where I see an 80 year old woman caring for my daughter, my, my mother-in-law. And she's always coming from a place of pure love, always. I I never see her doing anything different. No. Um, And yet, yet her daughter will say, well, when she was younger, she did this. When she was my mom, she did this.
0: Well, you know, so old, you know, my my dad had a saying for that. My dad would tell me all his lifetime after he became an elder in our family, he would look at me and he'd say, son, so old, so soon, so smart, so late, so old, so soon. So smart, so late. But, you know, if we were to raise our children, given the values of those of us who've gotten smarter a little later, then maybe the next generation of young people would move into their adulthood with different experiences and different values and different ideas. But it would start, the God solution says, let's start at the top. Let's start where eight out of ten people look to find their value system. If we decided to, to share with our children and with all, all of the people of the earth, not just young people, that we do in fact have a, a, a God, if you please. There is, in fact, a higher power, but it's not some huge guy in the sky with, you know, gray hair. And, but, you know, what if God was was simply an energetic essence, self, self-contained, self-assured and self-aware? very self-aware and energetic, the source of all wisdom and clarity in the universe. But but what if that source of energetic expression needed nothing? What if it needed nothing for the simple reason that it was? Everything it could possibly need, that it constructed and it is composed and everything that exists is comprised of this energetic expression. And what if God, what we call God, needed and required nothing of us in order to love us? Even those of us who don't deserve to be loved, would that be the highest expression of pure love? Wouldn't the highest expression of pure love be to love someone who we don't think deserves to be loved? when we love them anyway for reasons of understanding that we see that they simply don't understand certain things that we understand clearly? Their ideas are not the same as ours, but their misunderstanding does not make them evil. It simply makes them mistaken. Mm. In, In our estimation, I might add, mistaken in our estimation. So what would it take for us to believe in a God who sees that we are children who are simply mistaken in our understandings of what life and love and what we are truly all about? If we decided to embrace such a notion of our deity, It would change the model that we use. It would change the ethic that we have applied to all of our interactions in the world, our political interactions, our social interactions, our economic interactions, and our spiritual interactions, for sure. We would have a completely different ethic upon which to base our choices and decisions. And that new ethic, an ethic that says, you know what? I don't require demand. Need anything from you in order for me to be kind and good to you. The joy of being kind and good to you, the joy of being a wonderful human being, the joy of being understanding and forgiving is sufficient. That is sufficient payback for me. I don't need you to give me anything in return. Life is not a quid pro quo. If we take quid pro quo off the map, which is, of course, how we understand God, God says you got to belong to the right religion if you don't belong to the right religion i use one example here yeah. if you don't belong to the if you don't belong to the right religion it doesn't matter how nice you are how good you are how kind you are how compassionate you are how generous you are how caring you are how hum- humorous you are how insightful you are how gentle you are none of that read that none of that matters you're going to hell and you'll be suffering everlasting torture in the fires of hades Because you simply belong to the wrong religion. What can I tell you?
1: That happens in this house. So my mother-in-law, who is in her late 70s, she desperately, desperately, desperately wants our daughter, Zia, who's four, to believe in her God, because if she doesn't, she believes she's going to go to hell. And when you really, really, really believe that, that is a really upsetting thing for you when you see the one person that you love and you really think that's going to happen. And we base
0: our decisions, we base our human decisions on that. If it was just a spiritual understanding, one might say, well, you know, I don't agree with it, but fair enough. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, but it, mm. but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Nations talk to other nations in exactly the same way. You either do things the way we want you to do them, or we're going to make sure that you do not survive. We'll send you to hell. Mm. We call. We'll call it an atomic warfare. or we'll call it uh, economic sanctions, or we'll call it some kind of payback because you will do what I want you to do. And we base our behaviors and we say we think we're justified. We actually say, no, you don't, Neil, you don't understand. That's how we have to behave on the earth the way it is. You have to talk tough. You have to be a bully. You have to insult people to their face. And you have to make sure they understand that if they don't agree with you, they're going to pay a price, a price they don't want to pay. What is that about? Who does that except barbarians? So we live in a barbarian civilization. and We call ourselves advanced. We imagine that we are an advanced society. We have no idea what it means to be advanced. But the God solution gives us some of those ideas on how we could change the way things are in this world. and That's why I produced the book.
1: Mm. Can I use another metaphor of heaven and hell? i a couple of nights ago i got into a fight with my wife and you know all my life i have i would say my motherboard the the initial wiring of me lee davy has been that barbarian the need to control the need to be right uh the need to put people right and a couple of nights ago that came out when i was having a having a fight and I, I blamed and I tried to pass my shame onto my wife. And then I, she said, I'm done. I want some space. I cannot talk to you right now. I said, okay. So I went upstairs in the bedroom and I got your book out and I started to read it about pure love and the simplicity of it. And I said to myself, why is this so complicated? But it is so simple. So rationally and logically, it is simple, but I'm making it so complicated. And the metaphor of heaven and hell was it seemed like my ego was the devil. And then my ego wouldn't allow me to make this simple. It wouldn't allow me to just emanate from pure love. What I mean by that is like every time my brain tells me to judge my wife or to complain at my wife for trying to control me or telling me what to do is to come from a place of pure love and say, the reason she is asking me if I brushed my daughter's teeth is not because she's trying to control me is she cares about our daughter's dental health. And if I can come from it, from that place of love and say, I forgot, thank you for reminding me instead of why do you keep controlling me?
0: Instead of feeling made wrong. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So I'm thinking to myself, I went downstairs and, and, and spoke, look, uh, and and we recorded it. I am committing to do my utmost to try to come from a place of pure love. Right. I don't want to blame you, justify all that kind of stuff, but I'm thinking if, if it's happening to me, did did she receive that? Did she hear that? Yes. And she trusts me that I'm on that journey. She doesn't think I'm going to turn into um, someone who can emanate pure love tomorrow, but she knows she's with somebody who is dedicated to the remainder of my life on this planet to trying to achieve, be, to raise awareness of when I'm not operating at a place of pure love and do something about it.
0: And and, and you know you know what at a different time even a couple of weeks after having a little bit of a row with your beloved spouse to sit down when you're just having kind of a quiet intellectual evening maybe having a sip of wine and just being together you know quietly you might you might even suggest you know sweetheart i've been looking i've been looking deeply at some of my own behaviors and where they come from and i am not only on my own eternal journey but i am the result of a journey that's already taken place on this planet Covering several hundred thousand years. Some say several million years. I don't know how to count them, but I can tell you it's been a long time. Mm. And and so I've been inculcated with a a dynamic. It's a cellular survival system and understanding at my cellular level that I have to go out and slay the dragon, that I'm the guy. I'm the I'm I'm you know you 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 do this and I do that and I can't allow myself to even feel that I've lost confidence in myself. So when somebody thinks that I that I did something wrong or failed to do what I needed to do, when I feel made wrong, it 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 feels like an attack at a far deeper level. It's not that just reminding me that I needed to do something and I, I failed to do it. If it were just that, I could just brush it off talk about brushing i could just brush it off in a a minute but you don't understand i feel that at a far deeper level i feel that oh i see i'm not enough and i have to defend myself i have to defend myself against the idea that i'm not enough so what i'm fighting darling is not just my own individual ego as, as lee or as i say to my wife as neil it's not just about neil's ego I'm having to overcome several hundred thousand years of cultural and adopted, adoptive behavior that causes me to respond like this. That's not an excuse that doesn't condone how I respond, but it does explain it. Mm. And I commit to you at a new level. Not only am I committed to live the rest of my life doing the best I can to improve who I am, I commit as well. To sloughing off as much as I can, the misinformation that I have received since the barbarian caveman days about what it means to be a man in the world. And I know you've got some stereotypes about what it means to be a woman in the world. Things that you have to do. Sometimes... You know, I remember I was married before to a wonderful lady, wonderful human being, but she complained all the time about all the things she had to do to take care of this and do that and do this and take care of that. And I looked at her and I would say, honey, don't do those things if you don't want to do those things. You don't understand. I have to. I'm the woman of the house. And I I got it. And and when I started realizing, wow, she's coming from the same place I'm coming from, Mm. a cellular memory of the roles we're supposed to play in the familial structure called humanity's society. Wow. What if we've misunderstood all of it? What if there's something we don't fully understand here about God, about life, and about ourselves? The understanding of which would change everything. And that's the basis of the Conversations with God series of books. There are 39 books that I've written. I can't stop talking. (laughs) Because at some point, I just want to shake myself and everybody that I know and say, wait a minute, none of us are bad people. None of us are bad people. But have we moved into our life with a misunderstanding of who we really are and what life is really about?
1: Wow. Mm. I think um, with conversations with God and with the God solution, the, the, the word that kept popping into mind all the time was awareness. Awareness. I remember like for the first 35, I stopped drinking alcohol when I was 35. So I haven't, I've been sober for over 10 years. And I would say for the first 35 years, I was just a zombie. Like I, I I was, I wasn't thinking like internally, there was no internal growth. Externally, there was no external growth. It was almost like a, a movie, like the groundhog day thing. And then I stopped and then I started to evolve a little bit, let's say. I thought at the time I had become some transcendent human being, and I knew the answers to everything. In the last, in the last <laughs> I six, know, mo-
0: I know the problem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in the last six months, I realised I know nothing, and I um, and that is both confronting and exciting at the same time. You know, so I'm I'm all about how can I become more aware. So like th- it's what well, uh, half eleven, right? So from half past eight till half past ten this morning. My role in this household is to be a father for a four-year-old daughter who I love dearly, right? But I need to continually raise oh, I'll tell you what I'm thinking, and you can tell me how I can I can help improve improve this and and with the with the application of pure love. I'm continually thinking to myself, well, I'm 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 going into zones of play and happiness and joy and, and I'm not thinking anything. We're just interacting as father and daughter on that level. And then it's interspersed with. I need to be doing this. What's the time? She's not eating her food. Um, she's not drinking her water. She just wants to play all the time. I need to edit. So there's this, this awareness. Like I, I I'm, I'm, I'm keep thinking to myself, I need to be aware about when I'm slipping into those areas of non-presence so I can get back into presence. But it's a challenge because I'm very often not aware to the point, Neil, I'm I set my alarm every two hours to remind me to be aware, right? Like, am I ever gonna get it? Am I gonna be 77, 78 before I get it? I mean, what do you think about oh, what that hurt?
0: Think? That hurt. Oh
1: <laughs> can yes. wisdom come at a younger age?
0: Yes, yes, of course, of course it can. I, I I'm not living proof of it, but I <laughs> but I do I do believe that But it, it can accommodate. Earlier age, and that's um, frankly why I wrote the thirty-nine books I've written. Uh, because I, I want to—if I, if I did nothing else in my life—I want to be able to pass on to those who are you uh, coming up behind me uh, what I didn't understand when I was their age, and hopefully uh, I've added a little bit to their understanding, to their larger uh, awareness of what's of what's true. So the answer to your question, from my point of view, is yes, of course. It's possible to learn that at a younger age, even at a very young age, even. Uh, and it, we, but we do have to understand what we're trying to understand. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to be aware of what we're trying to be aware of, and most people are not. My my observation. I don't mean to be judgmental, but it's just an observation of myself when I was mm-hmm. younger, uh, and even today to some degree. And my observation of other people is that most people are not aware of what they want to be aware of. They don't understand what they're trying to understand. And so we're walking around like a bunch of people, an entire civilization does not really know what it's doing. We don't even know why we're here. We don't even have an understanding of our true identity. And when I give talks around the world, which I've been doing the last 20 years, and, and share with people from Croatia to Moscow, from Tokyo to Los Angeles, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and elsewhere in between, I I share with audiences, I say, do you even know who you are? There there, there are four fundamental questions of life. And I challenge my audiences to wake up every morning and ask themselves those four questions when they look at themselves for the first time in the mirror that morning. I want you to ask yourself four questions, I say to them. Number one, who am I? I mean, really, who am I? What is my true identity? Am I simply a physical entity? like a bird in the sky, a fish in the sea, a dolphin or a whale, more sophisticated, perhaps more complex, fair enough, but basically at its bottom line, just a a physical entity? Or am I more than that? Is it possible, just just possible, that I'm actually a spiritual entity, having a body and a mind, but what if I'm not my body and my mind? What if my body and my mind are simply tools, things I have? What if I'm a spiritual entity? So the question becomes, who am I? Question number two, where am I? I don't mean what room of the house am I in, or even what country am I in, or even what planet am I on. But what is this whole milieu? What is this whole environment that I find myself in, that I have come to call the realm of the physical? What is this, this physicality that I find myself in? And if I'm a spiritual entity, if it's really true that I am a spiritual entity, why am I where I am? which is question number three. Why am I where I am? What am I doing in the realm of the physical? There must be something I'm up to here. There must be some reason I'm here that makes sense to my soul. And once I answer those three questions, who am I, where am I, and why am I where I am, then I come to question number four. What do I intend to do about that? And the living of my life today is my answer to that question. So when I lay my head down on the pillow tonight, I get to have an awareness. Did I answer those four questions in a way that demonstrated the highest truth of which I am capable of comprehending about who I am, where I am, and why I am here? And so I've boiled this down in my latest writing to a simple question. It's a question that I invite myself to ask myself. Before I even think about anything in a serious, prolonged way. before And certainly before I say anything. Mm. And before I do anything. So before I think, say, or do anything, I ask myself this question. Is what I'm about to think, say, or do feeling like an expression of pure love? If the answer is yes, I move into that experience. If the answer is, well, it doesn't feel like pure love, then I back away from what I was thinking, saying, or doing, and I make a new choice. I also have another wonderful statement that I say to myself these days, recently. Whenever I encounter anybody in my life for the first time that day, maybe it is my beloved spouse or my children. I'm seeing them for the first time. I just got up, just woke up, and and it's my first encounter with that person. Or maybe it's a total stranger that I'm seeing on the street. Never, Never met this person before in my life. Was a clerk at the post office that I encounter about two or three times a month. So he's not a stranger exactly, but I don't know him very well. Whenever I encounter any human being at all, for the first time in each day, I make a statement to myself in my mind. I don't say it out loud, of course, because no one would understand. But I say it quietly in my mind. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Your life will be made better this day for my having passed through it, I promise you. I made that statement before you came on my computer screen. Your life will be made better today in some small way because I passed through it, I promise you. When I encounter every human being, whether it's a total stranger or someone that I'm living my life with, when I encounter every human being with that idea in my mind, does it change radically how I choose to proceed? Even if I'm upset, even if I feel made wrong, even if I'm angry about something or disappointed or frustrated, yes, it does, because I then know who I really am and why I'm really here. And here's the truth of it. I'm not really here for you. I'm not here for my spouse. I'm not even here for my children. Not in the strictest sense. I am here for them in the sense that what I do for them, I do for me. Ultimately, I'm here in order that I might become the next grandest version of the greatest vision ever I knew about who I am. I am here serving a larger agenda, the agenda of my soul. I have chosen to physicalize. I've chosen to be in this physical realm that I might know through my own expression and experience my true identity as an aspect of the divine. I'm going to suggest to you But that has been the motivation behind the actions, choices, decisions, and words of every human being that we have called an avatar, a master, a guru, or, if you please, a savior. Saving us from our smallest idea about who we are and opening us to a grander notion, a larger awareness, a divine understanding. Now, you know what, Lee? I could be
1: wrong about all of this. (laughs) i was gonna say i was gonna say it feels right to me i mean when before i came on i was nervous and i was telling myself that i approve of myself and that i feel secure and that i in control and so my my energy and my intentions are very very different and even when we came on Your calmness and sereneness, your tone, the space between words, just the relaxed slowness of your speech was confronting to me because I find that terrifying. And I'm beginning to think that the reason I find it so terrifying is in that lies my answer of intention. So like, how can I be intentional? How can I ask those questions? How can I spend my time with my daughter in pure love? If I'm, my mind is going 100 miles an hour. I'm eating too fast. I'm thinking too fast. I'm talking too fast. Does that make sense?
0: Well, yes, at some level. Although I want to say it doesn't in my in my own view it doesn't necessarily have to do with the speed speed of things with how fast you eat or talk. Uh, so much as it has to do with content, that is, what am I being? I have invited people to change the focus of their life from what they're doing to what they're being. We are, after all, is said and done, not human doings or human beings. Mm. And so the question becomes what am I choosing consciously to be, however rapidly I speak or eat? But what am I choosing to be? Am I choosing to be joyful, compassionate? understanding and if you please a demonstration of pure love because we have this notion that our emotions overtake us you know i couldn't help it I just i wasn't myself i couldn't help it it was just overcome by emotion but i have been sharing with people my awareness that emotion is not something that with which we are overcome emotion is something we choose now fair enough we choose it this fast the mind is an amazing instrument and so we will take in data about what's going on in our exterior world, what's going on with our daughter, what's going on with our spouse, what's going on in the world at large, what's going on outside the window right now. We, have a, we, we, we The mind takes in all the data and it compares it with data already held, with prior, what I call prior data, makes an instant comparison, then it determines what our appropriate response based on our understanding of the prior data should be in this present moment. It does this in milliseconds. And so in one millionth of a second, it informs us on what our best response should be to the data that's incoming right now. Based on an interesting notion that survival is the fundamental instinct. I've got to find a way to survive. Talking about the caveman era, I was talking Mm. about earlier. Mm. Survival is the fundamental instinct. And not just survive in, in the sense of making sure I don't physically die. I mean, surviving, just surviving the moment. I've got to survive this moment and be the winner in this moment. So how do I survive? Because survival is a fundamental instinct. The conversations with God made it very clear to me. Survival is not the fundamental instinct. It's not the basic instinct. If survival were the basic instinct, we wouldn't run into the burning building to save the crying baby that we hear on the second floor. We would run away from the building. Hmm. We might get on the phone and call 911. We wouldn't race into the building. But surveys, talk about surveys, have shown that the average person, if they see a building on fire and hear a baby crying from the second floor window, eight out of 10 people would race into that building. They wouldn't sit there and weigh the odds. Gee, what if I'm going to survive? The question in moments like that is not whether I'm going to die, but how am I going to live? Whether I live for 20 more years or 20 more minutes. The question becomes, who am I? And so the fundamental instinct is the instinct to express divinity, not survival. If we can bring the two together and survive being divine, fair enough. But if we have to make a choice, we're going to choose divinity every single time. We call those people heroes. Hmm. People who jump off the platform at the New York subway station to grab the child before the subway comes roaring in but it was too late, the subway came roaring in too fast. So we place our body over the child, as deep into the tracks as we can, as deep into the crevice between the two lanes as we can. And by golly, we survived and we saved the child. And the people on the platform are applauding crazy and they jump off the platform to say, you're a hero, you're a hero. And the news media come and the TV cameras come, you're a hero, you're a hero. And we look at the camera and we say, I did what anybody would do. <laughs> yeah, That's the fundamental instinct. And when we follow that fundamental instinct, not just in moments when all the chips are down, but in the moments when we have a chip on our shoulder, that's when we have made a huge transformational decision. When we said to the world at
1: large and
0: to ourselves,
1: this is who I really am. That's a question I'm going to be asking myself moving forward a lot. My new daily practice: those four questions. Thank you for that, Neil. I want to talk about forgiveness a little bit. I haven't finished your book yet, but I've read about. I've read about.
0: Well, let me share with you that forgiveness is the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth.
1: Mm. Yeah, I was. But I, I tell you a little story as to why I think this might be complicated for people to get over. Um. Two weeks ago, I took my four-year-old daughter to the park, and I allowed her to stroke a dog, a German Shepherd, and it attacked her. And um, I had to take her to hospital. She had stitches in her mouth wound, and, then, and she had a cut in her eye. And we took her to the plastic surgeon yesterday, and he said, she's going to be okay. So it's a, it's a good news story, right? But whenever I talk to anybody about what happened, and I was, uh, I was the guy, I had to pick her up. I had to look at her bloodied face, my four-year-old daughter. I had to think to myself that she's going to be scarred forever. And all anybody really wanted to talk about was who to blame, who whose dog was it, who, who was looking after the dog, right? And I had a massive problem with this because I wasn't thinking like that. I was thinking about my daughter, first and foremost. But when it came to the dog, I just thought to myself, well, this is what dogs do. And I accepted that that's what dogs do. And I accepted 100% responsibility for not getting in the way of that dog and my daughter. And I, but not self flagellating, just, okay, I'm going to do that differently next time she's stroking a dog. And when it comes to to the parent, the the owners of the dog, I believed wholeheartedly the conversation that that dog in three years had never harmed a child. And I also believed that when they left the park, that they were going to learn from that incident and they wouldn't let another dog touch that, another child touch that dog. I believed that in my heart, and I was done with it, but everybody wanted to drag me back into it. I didn't even feel like I needed to forgive them. And your book spoke to me. It was the first time that anybody had understood what I'd experienced when you were were saying, I don't have to forgive anybody, I just have to understand what happened and be done with that.
0: Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. This is what I've been told. And I made a statement a moment ago that might raise a few eyebrows. I said that understanding is the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth, which is hard for people to hear when I say that in, in front of an audience at a lecture or in a workshop or a retreat, because we've been taught exactly the opposite. We've been taught that you know, to forgive is divine and all the rest. But, and so we've been taught precisely the opposite of what I just said. But in fact, to forgive is not divine. In my in my awareness, because God forgives us for nothing. Now, when I make that statement in front of a, an audience in church, I get invited to talk to, in churches sometimes. And I stand in the pulpit and I say, I come here this morning to tell you that God will never forgive you for anything. And the place goes nuts. <laughs> I mean, some people actually get up and wave their eye on, and they actually leave the church. What's this guy doing in the pulpit? But God will not. Forgive us for anything because it's impossible for us to offend, upset, anger, or frustrate God. Because what God wants, needs, requires, and demands nothing from us. So it's it's like that you know that three-month-old baby you have in your arms. You know, you're holding a three-month-old picture of utter perfection in your arms, and the baby has an unfortunate biological accident. <laughs> you, you don't forgive the child. Forgiveness isn't part of the equation. Mm. You you even see at some level some joyful perfection in the biological accident. You say, okay, it's a baby. It's a child. So we are the children of the universe. And God requires nothing from us. So God will not forgive us for anything. But now, because God doesn't need to forgive us for anything, because forgiveness isn't part of the equation now. If I accept that I am an aspect of divinity, if I'm willing to embrace the notion, and not just conceptually, not just theoretically, but actually, as a function, functionally accept that I am an individuation of divinity, then if I feel that I need to forgive somebody for something, I'm denying my divinity. That's why I say that forgiveness is the biggest obstacle to spiritual growth, because I have to I need to must deny who I am in order to imagine that I need to forgive you for anything at all. But when I understand that I am an aspect of divinity, then I see just as you saw in the park that day, things as they really are. There are no victims and there are no villains in the universe. There's just what's happening. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that's even true of. Terrorists who deliberately fly airplanes into buildings as they did on 9-11 and commit murder intentionally. What does God say about that? I'm asked in lectures all the time. What about you know, murderers and rapists and child abusers and you know the evil people of the world? And my answer, you know, scares the hell out of them. I mean, it scares the hell right out of them. Mm. Because I say to them, Every act is an act of love. It's not that people don't know how to love. It's that people have not learned in our young civilization how to love in a way that does not create damage or hurt for another. We've not learned the golden rule. It's as simple as that. We've been told the golden rule for thousands of years, but we refuse to treat others as we would like to be treated. And so when we ask the terrorists, why would you do such a thing? If you listen carefully, you will find that behind their action was the love of something. Either the love of a principle, or the love of a way of life, or the love of their own cultural story, which they feel threatened about, that is going to be taken away from them, or the love of something or another. This does not mean that we condone their action. It does not mean that we agree with their action. It does not mean that we suggest they do it again. But it does mean that we understand. Oh, I understand. Pope um, John Paul II, I believe it was Pope John Paul, hmm. forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe it was Pope John Paul, was actually um, uh, almost murdered. Um, uh, he was dra- driving through Rome in a, in, a, in a motorcade, an open car, and some guy stepped out of the crowd and shot him six times, six times. Bang, 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 bang. Six shots in the road. Got him in the chest, in the arm, in the neck. Then of course, the Pope almost died. They rushed him to the hospital. He managed to save his life. But they caught the guy who shot him. And when the Pope was out of the hospital a few months and recovering, he went to see the man in his cell in prison. And he gave the man his papal blessing because he had an interesting conversation. He said to the man, "I I can't agree with violence at any level, And I certainly don't agree with violence on my person. But I am wanting to know, why would you do such a thing? What have I ever done to you? And the man explained why he felt that the Pope stood for a system that was violating his and threatening to take from him his dearest personal belief system, his own religious understanding, and his own cultural awareness. And so he saw the Pope as symbolic of that threat. The Pope said, you know what, I I can't agree with what you did, but I can understand how you could have done such a thing. And he gave him his papal blessing. And the two became pen pals. I'm not making this story up. This is a true story. You can check it out. Mm -hmm. And they, they began writing letters back and forth. The man from his jail cell, the Pope from the Vatican. And ultimately, after the man served, I think it was six or seven years, the Pope asked the authorities to grant him a full pardon and to release him from prison. And the authorities did, and the man was released. The Pope said, you know, seven years is long enough. He made a terrible mistake. He shouldn't have behaved that way, but we're going to move to a place and give him a full pardon. Mm. Now, I only use the example to allow us to know that people can behave this way. People can behave from a place of pure love. People can behave in a way where they are clear. That understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Now, I could, of course, be wrong about all of this,
1: but I don't think so. Neil, Donald Walsh, thank you very much for giving us and my listeners some of your time. I feel really privileged, and I appreciate you for coming on. Your books have touched me in incredible ways, and I am going to try my best to be a person of pure love and to try to emanate that and to teach and to guide others to towards your work and to do the same thing. So thank you very much for joining us today, Neil.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you for that commitment. I just heard you make, and thank you for being the person you are. Blessings.
1: If you want to be somebody that doesn't drink alcohol or recover from any other addiction, improve your relationship with yourself and those that you love, or just want to learn to live a more conscious life, then here is what we can do to help you at 1,000 Day Sober. Number one, we have a Strive subscription service, okay? So you pay a monthly fee, you come and join us, you come into our community, you get access to all our Marco Polo groups, you get access to our Kajabi group, you get access to uh, content that you will not see in the public sphere, mainly by yours truly, but by other people in my network, our friends as well. What else do you get? You get access to a weekly coaching call with myself. So you can get coaching, a one-on-one coaching with me on that weekly coaching call. And you get money off various different workshops and uh, invites to lots of other free stuff. So that's our subscription service. You could do group coaching programs. Okay, Right now we have two group coaching programs, Both called the Strive Method. The first one is addictions, okay? And they last for six months. The relationship course also lasts for six months. We've got Strive Method for addictions, Strive Method for relationships. There are workshops, okay? Or you can work with me personally one on one, okay? You can work with me personally one on one. And if you want to get involved in any of that, then just head to www.1000daysober.com. And you will find everything that's going on there. Okay. We have pages there on the website, which will direct you in the right place and how to get older, me, including a workshop space there as well. We're always running workshops, so you can sign up for those as well. Last but not least, if you do love this show and it has changed your life and you want to change the lives of somebody else, tell somebody about it and rate and review it in your podcast provider. I would really appreciate that. If you want to just reach out to me, ask me a question, just email me, 1kdaysober.com, ah, at gmail.com. Much love, everybody. Bye.